I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. And I'm your elf on a shelf. And I'm your what rhymes with reindeer, Dean Dilloff. <laughs> your main deer. Your main beer. All right, folks, we've got a lot to do in this episode. But most importantly, at the very top of it, we want to give a quick plug to our favorite magazine and your next favorite Christmas gift that you're going to give to somebody in your family. Um, listen, do you have somebody in your life who likes kind of like Christian stuff, but maybe not totally? The cool kind. <laughs> do you have some? Yeah, the good kind. Do you have somebody in your life that likes the good kind of Christian stuff that's like uh, spiritually interesting, but also like anti-capitalist? Then you need to uh, run, don't walk to gsmagazine.org and buy them a subscription for Christmas. Um, we're not we're not getting paid for the sponsorship in any way. <laughs> We just really like this magazine, <laughs> and, that, and that's it. Uh, it's the thing that we always give people for Christmas, and uh, we think you should too. It's a good. It's one. a great one. It's full of good stuff. In fact, the most recent ep- the episode I said <laughs> the, in my brain, the most recent nope. uh, uh, issue—that's the word I was looking for. The most recent issue of G's actually has a lot to do with international solidarity specifically, and there are a bunch of Magnificast guests who are authors in that magazine. So if you like this podcast, that is a good sort of uh, entry point in. You can see what Jesus is all about, and it is a great gift. The subscriptions are extremely cheap. Let me tell you, folks, uh, it is bizarre how cheap this magazine is. And it's really fun. You get it four times a year. It's quarterly. There's also a ton of other great stuff on the website that you can buy buttons and T-shirts and all the rest of it. And it's great. I think it's the best thing in Christian publishing. And it's a very special kind of publication. And we need more of it. We need more G's in the world. So go to gsmagazine.org and do get it. And we're telling you it. We're telling you that right now, because I feel like if you listen to this episode on the day it comes out and you ordered it that day. Maybe you wouldn't get it right in time for Christmas, but you'd get it pretty close, I would guess. So during during perhaps one of the 12. Yeah, exactly. Within the 12 day period, for sure. Uh, You could at least pray about it. And I bet God would answer that prayer for G's as well. (laughs) Yeah. You know, something else I really like about G's that that what Dean, what you just said was a great sort of natural ending to this this (laughs) plug segment. But I'm going to keep it going. Something else I do like about G's is that uh, they have like these like cool study guides that come with each issue. So it's like not only are these magazines for you, but if you wanted to read them with your, um, I don't know, faith community of whatever variety, you could definitely do that. And there's like some nice guided questions. And uh, it's cool. Yeah, dang. You know what? Uh, You were going to end it there. But guess what? I'm going to up the ante. It would have been a great natural (laughs) ending. Yeah, Another great natural ending that I'm going to ruin by telling you more about G's. Uh, Yeah. uh, In addition to study guides, great issues and so on. Uh, The other thing I really like about G's is that it is an actual community of writers and readers. And man, they are always putting on really fascinating stuff. Everything that I've gone to, uh, whether it's like a Zoom talk from an author or a poet or somebody else, uh, it's always been really rewarding. I've never been in a group of people as thoughtful and intentional as the G's folks. Uh, they've been on the show a few times, so you've probably heard them in the past. Terry and Lydia have both been on here, and let's face it, they'll be on here again, probably in the new year. 
But it's a, a great community to be part of, especially if you're looking for a place to kind of explore spirituality in, I think, an environment that's not too, not too churchy in a bad way. There's an occasional cuss. They did a whole uh, issue about sex recently. I mean, there's a lot going on there. So uh, check it out. It's a good, safe space to talk with lots of folks about a lot of things. Now, that's what I call a solid, natural ending. What you've done there is organic, and you stop talking. I yeah, third time's a charm. And I'm going to respect it this time. Um, so so great. All right, hard break. We're pivoting towards something else. We talked about G's, and we want you to buy it. Okay. But if this is the first episode that you've listened to from the Magnificast in a minute, then I'm sure that was a jarring <laughs> plug, but that's okay. Um, but we, we've got, we got some catching up for you to do. Um, this Advent, we're talking about Cuba... U.S. propaganda and how bad and dumb the blockade against Cuba actually is, right? That's been the whole theme. So this is the third episode in that series. And if you haven't heard the first two, you don't need to. I mean, there's no reason, but you could if you felt compelled <laughs> by, you know, the spirit of the Holy Spirit. I wish I we sold our podcast um, with as so, much enthusiasm as we sell G's Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have to go back and listen to it, but I'm saying you could. If you felt so led. Um, all right. So go go and listen to them or don't. I'm not your dad. I don't care. If you haven't listened to those episodes, you also might not have heard that we also made a cool uh, zine that tells the story of Christianity in Cuba. And uh, that's neat. Another thing that you can get, if you if you like magazine <laughs> things, then this is definitely for you. You can get it at bit.ly slash cubazine. Uh, download it, uh, print it off, put it in your, uh, I don't know, your your cranky Uncle Mark's stocking, and uh, he can learn all about it. Hide it in your dad's new Bill O'Reilly biography about Abraham Lincoln. That's right. That's exactly what you should do. Okay, cool. So we've got all the plugs on the table. Get get Cheese Magazine. Get our particular Cuba zine at bit.ly slash Cuba zine. And uh, it's going to be great. You're going to have a great holiday season full of things to read, and you're going to love it. Okay, so like I was just saying a minute ago, in previous weeks, we've talked a lot about the negative propaganda and like clandestine operations the U.S. has carried out against Cuba. It's all been great. Some great episodes. This week, however, we're going to explore a bit of a different direction. We spent so much time talking about all of the bad things that the United States has done to Cuba. We've not talked about any of the very cool things about Cuba. So we're going to we're going to set that straight right now. Right. Um, We're going to talk about (laughs) what it is that Cuba is doing that the U.S. clearly wants to distract you from. (laughs) What what is the United States government not want you to know about Cuba and their uh, their great and cool things that they're doing in the world? Um, Everything you wanted to know about Cuba, but you were afraid to ask your youth pastor. (laughs) That's right. Everything you want to know about Cuba, but USA didn't want you to know desperately. Um, I mean, I think it's a funny question, though, right? Like, why does the United States go through all of this propaganda and, like, covert operations in the first place? Like, why, for example, did the United States try to, like, you know, exercise soft power by making a weird Twitter clone in Cuba? <laughs> why, why go through the, the effort, right? And uh, there's probably a few reasons. Um, some, you know, about political economy and some things that are probably, uh, you know, less material, um, but at least one reason is in the ways that Cuba has just not kept the revolution to itself. Um, since the very beginning, Cuba has made a certain brand of internationalism and like mutual aid and support a deep part of its political and national identity. And I think that is powerful because it stands in you know stark opposition to the coercive aid and outright imperialism of the United States, right? It's a uh, C- Cuba is dangerous because it's like a publicly good idea and <laughs> they do good things. <laughs> And uh, and, I, and an idea that people are willing to defend. That's right. Yeah, an idea that people are willing to defend. So in this episode, we're going to talk about some of the good examples set by Cuba and talk through why it is that Christians might be interested in the revolution as an expression of their own faith, uh, like other Christians have thought uh, throughout history in, in the zine that we wrote. Uh, so there it all is. Uh, Dean, uh, now it's your turn for you to do your thing. <laughs> Great, thanks. I uh, really appreciate that handoff. Here's the baton. I'll make sure we carry that to the next uh, stop. Some podcasts um, don't just do this like explicitly. Some of the, some people they plan all of these sort of transitions, but here we're 100% transparent in everything we do. So um, people, that's right. You see how the yeah. sausage is made as we're making it. <laughs> and boy, is it vegan and delicious. <laughs> um, before we get to all the great things about Cuba, here's let's let's maybe set the stage with one uh, little quote from the man with the big hat himself, Pope Francis. Um, in July of last year or this year, this year, it's 2022. 
In July of this year, Pope Francis said, I love the Cuban people very much. I had good human relations with Cuban people, with the Cuban people. And also, I confess, with Raul Castro, I have a human relationship. Uh, Pope Francis also pointed out that he was happy when there was a what he called a small agreement reached with the United States, which Obama wanted at the time and Raul Castro accepted. And he said it was a good step forward, but it has stopped now. At the moment, probing dialogues are being held to shorten the distance between the U.S. and Cuba. Cuba is a symbol. Cuba has a great history. I feel very close even to the Cuban bishops. Uh, a warm remark from Pope Francis, all pretty innocuous, um, good diplomatic kind of stuff, not saying too much or too little, you know, wanting to get everybody in the mix here while Castro's there, the bishops are there, not always fast friends, <laughs> to say the least. Um, and Pope Francis had gone to Cuba, uh, I think in 2015, during his papacy anyway. Uh, as you can imagine, though, a lot of people didn't like the Pope saying something nice about Cuba. Uh, specifically people in Miami that you could guess complained about it. Uh, there were a handful of editorials that you could expect. And also the surprisingly still existent U S branch of the organization tradition, family property <laughs> had something to say about it. Uh, TFP as it's called is quite a rabbit hole that we're not going to go down, but you're welcome to do it, uh, after this podcast. Uh, it was founded in Brazil. It spent the 20th century running terrorism campaigns across Latin America and elsewhere, too. They did all kinds of weird stuff in France and Italy, just a bizarre organization. Uh, they were trying to stamp out liberation theology, among other things. And in a blog post, the TFP had a, a screed responding to Pope Francis saying, Pope Francis calls Cuba a symbol of what? Now, TFP answers that question in some very weird ways <laughs> but we're gonna tell you we're gonna tell you the real ways uh we're gonna tell you exactly what cuba is a symbol of which is something that pope francis doesn't lay out either and we're gonna go through some examples of solidarity of how the revolution has not been kept to itself as matt put it and we're gonna come back at the very very end to some liberation theologians and try to figure out what do they get out of Cuba? What do they think that Cuba is a symbol of? What does it do for them as people trying to think through the preferential option for the poor and what that means in a continent like Latin America or a region like uh, the Caribbean? So, Matt, I'm going to hand the baton back to you now. Thank you. Uh, I think we've reached the the 30-meter mark. <laughs> um, why, don't, why don't you go ahead and take us through the beginning here? What can we get uh, on the table here about Cuba? Uh, why is it good? Yeah, I like that quote from uh, Pope Francis, Cuba is a symbol. Um, and for what, I think, is actually a great question. There are a few different ways that we can answer that question, um, but he here is a few. Um, Cuba is a symbol for a country who has made internationalism and a type of nationalism, but not the bad kind, a part of its identity. Now, we'll talk about what that might mean more in a minute. Nationalism is a phrase that is back in a big way in the United States, and it's um, always been a part of like the Cuban identity, but it doesn't mean quite the same thing, or perhaps it just doesn't work the same way um, in, in Cuba. So anyways, let's, let's get to it, though. You might remember a few months back, um, we had Margaret Randall on the podcast, and Margaret Randall is a extremely good poet um, who lived in Cuba for a time um, in the like eighties and nineties. Um, and she also spent time, uh, with Ernesto Cardinal in, uh, Nicaragua. Uh, she's, she's a poet and kind of like an interesting cultural figure, uh, who has a lot to say about socialism and has kind of like worked in the trenches of these like revolutionary movements. Someone I like a lot. Um, go listen to that episode. It's a good one. So Margaret Randall though, apart from all of that, uh, she has a book that's called exporting revolution. Um, Cuba's global solidarity. So it's, it's about the internationalism of Cuba and how that kind of ethic permeates its political identity and political project. Um, and it's a cool book, and I, I would love it if you read it. <laughs> One more thing to, to stuff in that stocking. <laughs> so I think the cool thing about Margaret Randall's book is that she explains the ways that after the revolution, Cuba understood itself as not just like a country in the Caribbean. It's part of like a worldwide struggle for like a, you know, third world types of liberation, like those types of movements specifically. And it didn't want to kind of keep its whole project to itself, it didn't want to hide it under a bushel. It wanted to um, find different ways to connect with those movements and help in whatever ways it can. Right. It, it wanted to take the the revolutionary movement of Cuba and spread it as far as it possibly could. Um, this looked like a few different things in practice, right? Sometimes it meant sending real military assistance to them, um, which happened a lot of places in 
Um, sometimes <laughs> it had bad ends. Um, sometimes, though, it meant sending doctors, and sometimes it meant sending teachers, and other times it meant, like, disaster relief. Um, we'll talk about more of that, like, kind of specifically in a few minutes, but you might remember even um, during the throes of COVID in 2020, a lot of Cuban doctors were, like, on the front lines of places that were hit particularly hard, like Italy. Um, so they were, you know, out in the field doing stuff, um, doing kind of like this uh, humanitarian work um, just as doctors. So um, I have a few kind of quotes here from Margaret Randall's book that I think highlight the um, the vibe of Cuba's internationalism. And they kind of help you get a, a, a grasp on like what exactly their whole deal is. Um, so Margaret <laughs> Randall says this. As a revolutionary virtue, Cuba's internationalism is more complex and multifaceted than simply going elsewhere to fight or heal or teach. It's a quality the revolution has consciously and systematically instilled in its citizens. I think that this is, I mean, this is short, a short quote, but I think it's important, right? Because uh, since the beginning of the revolution, uh, the revolution is in 1959, in case you didn't know. But from the very beginning in 1961, um, Cuba is is training its citizens and like cultivating a particular type of person and like a particular type of leader to not only help the people within its country, but help people outside of its country. Uh, you know, the very first, uh, we'll talk about this again more in detail, but like the very first missions that uh, people went on in Cuba were sort of within the country itself to, to teach people literacy, how to read and write. And then like that evolves into teaching people elsewhere to read and write um, and, you know, to, to different sort of ends and different places. But I think that is is an important quality of the revolution. Right. It's not just like um, I think it's a it's a quality that's different than I think um, you might even see in the Soviet Union in some ways, though they had a literacy campaign, too. And it's different. But all that say the uh, the internationalism of Cuba is kind of baked in from the very beginning, right? The whole point of Cuba is not to kind of keep its things to keep the to keep the project to itself, but to kind of carry it out elsewhere. So yeah, and I mean, it's a it's important to underline how unique that is to Cuba. You know, the Soviet Union, for example, is um, often painted as well, during the Cold War, it was painted as this sort of big, uh, big giant monster that was creating communism all over the world. Mm -hmm. And it was actively promoting revolution. And there's some truth to that, but actually not as much as the West probably thought. And in fact, not as much as many oppressed countries wanted. In fact, there's lots of stories of liberation movements reaching out to the Soviet Union and saying, hey, can you give us a hand? And the Soviet Union saying, we're going to take a sort of wait and see approach on this. Um, and the People's Republic of China was kind of doing its own thing, wasn't really in a position to promote world communism in the same way. And Cuba was different because it was so small, is so small, and nevertheless really took that international sort of vision to heart. And like you said, Matt, sending military aid and other kinds of aid and often even provoking the Soviet Union to become more involved in certain liberation struggles, especially in Africa in particular. Um, and I think that is a huge thing. Like there's something <laughs> evangelistic about Cuba. Yeah. Uh, something that really wants to see the whole world uh, liberated. And in fact, Cuba charted kind of its own path in the history of communism. Uh, people who are really familiar with the history of communism might remember the Sino-Soviet split when Russia and China were growing distant uh, for ideological and political reasons, lots of other kinds of things going on there. Cuba always had a, a relationship with the Soviet Union, which is very complicated, but it also went out of its way to join what was called the non-aligned movement, uh, a lot of decolonizing states that were neither capitalist nor integrated into the socialist bloc. And Cuba really saw that as an opportunity to say, you know, if these countries are going to develop in a way that's socialist, then we have to, like, convince them to do that. And that means throwing all in with them in their struggle. Um, even uh, people like Nelson Mandela, for example, famously um, friendly to Fidel Castro because Cubans had uh, gone in the thousands to fight in Angola against the apartheid regime. So lots and lots of examples here. But I guess what I'm trying to lay out is that Cuba has this really like intense kind of missionary fervor, you could say, yeah. for wanting to see the world free. Yeah, uh, the that's right. That's a, I think that's some really good helpful context to how Cuba kind of sits in that international order and how it does stand out as something that's, you know, unique amongst those things. Um, in Margaret Randall's book, she takes some like 
steps to explain the ways that I think a lot of what you're sta- saying here about um, Cuba's sort of like unaligned nature, but also its willingness to align itself with uh, like decolonial projects and liberation struggles and stuff. Um, that a lot of those things work in Cuba specifically because of the nationalist project in Cuba as well. Um, uh, you know, it's like, again, nationalism is a hard word, I think, for people in the United States and Canada to hear because it means something really particular. But in Cuba, it means something a little bit different uh, because uh, figures like really important literary figures like Jose Marti, right? They were strong Cuban nationalists. But a type of nationalism that's, like, rooted in the idea of, like, um, I guess, like, republicanism, I guess you could say. Because, um, I mean, mm-hmm. Marti is not, like, a communist or something. But but republicanism or different types of, like, enlightenment, sort of, like, universalist kind of political ideologies. Um, and within that, uh, within Marti's work, though, you get ideas about liberation and, like, national liberation. But also, like, the the liberation of other, other countries in, in the Americas. So all that to say that, like, the... The internationalism of Cuba is like the other side of the coin of the nationalism of Cuba. Um, so I, I don't know. Something to think about how those things like work together. Um, in a time where uh, you have all kinds of right wing nationalists running around in the United States, and also you have like some extremely bizarre um, <laughs> other right wing nationalists uh, who think that they're communists in the United States. Um, <laughs> to just I don't know. Some interesting. Uh, I don't know. Not prescriptions, but. Uh, descriptions of, of what happened elsewhere yeah uh you mentioned not a moment ago uh that uh cuba is kind of trying to create like a new kind of person or form a new kind of leader yeah and i think that's a good thing to pull out here as well that it's the nationalistic project is one of saying that cuba is a kind of unique community that needs to preserve and reproduce itself in a progressive way Um, So not preserve itself in a kind of recalcitrant or reactionary way, but to say we want to preserve the gains of the revolution and continue to deepen them. And that changes people within that kind of communal or collective project, which is not the kind of nationalism you get in the United States. Right. The U.S. is is just not a nation pursuing that kind of project. So (laughs) it's a fundamentally different character. I think what else is interesting about that is uh Cuba is trying to get out from under the thumb of Spain and Spain's identity, first of all, uh, in its anti-colonial struggle. And then secondly, out from under the thumb of the United States as a kind of satellite or dependent state. And that's important, too, to say that there's a collection of liberation dreams on the island of people trying to be like, well, what would it be like if we could chart our own path? And that's a it ends up being at least a path towards socialism Really famously, Che Guevara wrote this book called The New Man uh, in Cuban Society, an essay, I guess, <laughs> not not quite a book. Uh, but the argument was that this really is the revolutionary project to form a new kind of human being, to think about the conditions under which certain human beings are kind of encouraged to act one way or another. And I think one of the biggest things we'll see in this episode is that Really, that is the the gift of Cuba to the world is a bunch of human beings formed to do a lot of incredible uh, self-sacrificing stuff in ways that the rest of us are kind of not formed by in the same way. Or at least I found I've had to work very hard mm-hmm. to be formed as a person who cares about international solidarity. Yeah, I'm glad that you bring up that that Che quote, because um, I know I, like I've read that before. Right. You know, the Cuban Revolution is about creating new new people just like you're saying, uh, new, in a very Christian, a very Christian type of language, new creations. Um, we love it. We love it. Che Guevara. Um, <laughs> but I, I think like I've read that before and it's interesting, but you know, it's always just like, well, like, what does that really mean? Um, but, uh, Margaret Randall kind of gives you a little bit of like, uh, I don't know, something to hold on to when it comes to like the, the new, the new people of the revolution. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so here, here are some, like some stats, some, some data to crunch in your, in in the big calculator that is your brain. Um, the, the numbers here are a bit dated, but, um, I think they kind of, they exemplify kind of like a, a larger point here. So Margaret Randall writes, by the end of the 20th century, a single aid worker for every 35,000 U.S. citizens had been in the Peace Corps or worked for USAID. That's, you know, the United States. So one person in 35,000. In Cuba, on the other hand, she continues, 
Uh, by January 1990, one out of every 228 citizens had served on overseas missions. And more recently, the ratio has been estimated to be like at one in 10. Uh, significantly different. Elsewhere, uh, a little bit later on in the book, she says roughly a tenth of Cuba's population of 11 million has taken part in some form of internationalism as soldiers in foreign wars, disaster relief personnel, teachers, doctors, cultural workers, and specialists in a vast variety of fields. Cuba's internationalism is what being the new man or woman is about. It strengthens the revolution internally and also gives it a good name among nations in that so many countries are indebted to the practice. So that's it. <laughs> I think that's really, it's cool though, right? It's, it's um, the, the new men or the new woman, the new people, I guess however we want to phrase it, to be inclusive. Um, it, it's not just like a nice thing that Shay has said or not like a lofty, like, idea but it is like uh you know there's there's a place where the rubber meets the road there and what it means is international solidarity and like going abroad and doing things <laughs> and i think that's significant right because um i mean doctors for example i think are, are the thing that always kind of gets put center stage in mm -hmm. the conversation around international solidarity in cuba like the doctors in cuba they aren't paid a lot of money um which is sometimes a problem uh logistically speaking but they go to other countries and they like put their lives on the line and their health on the line to help other people because that's what Cuba does. <laughs> and not, not because they're going to be like rewarded for it in the end, but because that's what it takes to be a Cuban person. And that's what it takes to do the revolution. Right. And like I said, sometimes yeah. it's troubling and like, um, you know, uh, the United States has kind of created a whole regime of, uh, trying to like get those doctors to defect, but that's another story that we can talk about a different time. Maybe all that say um, there's like a real practice here. That's not just like, it's not just a lofty idea. There's a real thing happening. Yeah. There's so much to say about Cuba health, Cuba's healthcare system. And there are whole books about it. There's a great documentary that you can watch for free on YouTube, just called Salud, which talks about the medical missions and interviews a ton of doctors who have gone on medical missions and returned to Cuba um, they interview like Jimmy Carter at one point for some reason. Um, but it's really fascinating to listen to these doctors because there is there's one moment where a guy goes to some country that I can't remember. It's been a long time since I saw the documentary, but he talks about being shocked at seeing a child who is malnourished because he was like, I worked in Cuba as a physician in this really poor area but I never saw a kid starving from hunger, like never had to treat that as a physician, even though Cuba is a poor country or sometimes they'll talk about going to, there's like a few interviews where they talk about going to uh, disaster places like hurricane swept islands or, or regions and being like, Whoa, Cuba gets battered by hurricanes all the time. And nevertheless, like it doesn't look like this afterwards and people don't suffer in this way afterwards. So it's a great documentary that shows you also the perspective of people who are actively working in healthcare. And there's some really revealing comments of doctors kind of finding a certain patriotism once they've left Cuba by recognizing exactly what Cuba has achieved with so little. Totally. Um, well, let's talk about healthcare a little bit more in Cuba. So what I'm going to give you here is also from Margaret Randall's book, and it's probably not a perfect picture of healthcare in 2022 in Cuba. Um, the, uh, the illegal blockade, uh, imposed by the United States continues to wreak havoc on the medical system in Cuba and, uh, does deprive the country of many, many very simple, uh, medical tools and supplies. Um, so that's real and a, a real struggle. Um, you know, all kinds of things are just like missing from hospitals and, um, and it's an absolute tragedy, but there's really no one else to blame other than the United States. Um, it's not like they, not like Cuba wants it that way or something. Um, the United States and the blockade prohibits this from, you know, from getting the things that they need. That being said. Importantly, by the way, sorry, just before you go on. Yeah. The, the U.S. and people who defend the blockade uh, will always say medicine and food are not embargoed. And that is just flatly not true, completely right. false. Um, it's true that it's not illegal to, under the blockade, get food and medicine to Cuba. But the ramifications of the blockade, insofar as they prohibit Cuba from access to certain markets, basically effectively does ban them from getting them in Cuba. Because, like, banks don't want to do business with Cuba. Cuba doesn't have access to 
um, places uh, or kind of venues in which you would get like cheaper food and medicine and so on. And it's uh, it's a mess. So all that to say, don't let anybody tell you that. That's a, <laughs> a lie from the State Department and it's a bad one. Yeah, that's helpful. I don't think I even knew that. That's great. Um, Sorry, it's not great. It's bad, but it's good to know that. That's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right. So Margaret Randall says this about her experience with the uh, the Cuban healthcare system. There are too many doctors. Everybody is a family physician. Everything is free, totally free, and not after prior approval or some kind of copay. The whole system seems turned upside down, and it's tightly organized, and the first priority is prevention. So that's what doctors are always kind of on the lookout for. Uh, Margaret Randall tells this interesting story, though, about her daughter who has to have an ear surgery there. Um, and she has to have like a, she has to have like a kidney removed, which is wild. Um, but anyways, all that say, like she went through this whole she, she got both of those things done um, in Cuba. And she kind of just tells her personal experience, which is, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, and it's not everything. Someone's personal experience is, you know, it's not the end of the story for sure. But it is interesting to hear like someone from um, someone from the United States who who's been, you know, a part of this particular healthcare system talk through it in, in these kinds of ways. Um, so the medicine in Cuba is socialized, uh, a scary word uh, that you might remember from the Barack Obama administration <laughs> when all of these uh, these wild right right wing Republicans were talking about uh, socialized medicine. Anyways, this is what um, Margaret Randall says about socialized medicine in Cuba. Socialized medicine in Cuba means everyone is covered. 98% of all children under the age of two are vaccinated against 13 common illnesses. 95% of all pregnant women are seen by a doctor during their first trimester, resulting in an extremely low infant mortality rate already mentioned. Freedom of reproductive choice has been available to Cuban women from the moment the revolution was victorious and abortions take place in hospitals with an overnight stay to ensure that any complications addressed. So it's just like... Um, I guess it, it's just worth saying that, like, uh, despite the problems that Dean mentioned, the problems, um, you know, the 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 de facto bans on um, getting like medical equipment, uh, there is sort of like a way that they've dealt with this. Um, and socialized medicine is it right? Everyone is covered, regardless of who you are. You don't have to pay. You don't have to wait for like a, an insurance company to say, "Yep, this is okay. This is not a problem." <laughs> Like you do in the United States, and you have to argue with them on the phone for hours and hours of your day. Um, I don't know. It, you know, like like I said, uh, the situation in Cuba is tough because the blockade uh, makes many things scarce, and um, there's other problems too. I suppose Cuba is not a perfect country, and it doesn't have to be a perfect country. But as a dad who just sat for five hours in an <laughs> in an ER waiting room today, <laughs> I'm pretty much for it. I don't know. It's hard to persuade <laughs> me any other way right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, the United States is stupid and it's bad and healthcare here is a joke and I hate it <laughs> that's what I'm here to say uh, the nurses and doctors they did a great job the, the administrative people they did as best they could but like it was understaffed we'll pay a gazillion dollars for whatever we had to do today and uh, I gotta tell you I wish we didn't this would be so much nicer <laughs> yeah uh, I think it's also important to note too that Cuba's philosophy of medicine is different like there is a community health kind of model where doctors go around to people in their neighborhood to check up on folks. And there is, as Margaret Randall says, a kind of emphasis on prevention rather than response. And I find that even psychologically such an interesting choice. For example, like I live in Canada, a country that also has socialized medicine. But Canada is very neoliberalized. And I also just went to my doctor recently for a pretty routine thing, and it was striking to me how much it really depends, how much your own health in Canada depends on you as an individual taking the initiative to, like, go see your doctor. Um, if I never scheduled an appointment with my doctor, I would just, like, never see him again mm. until I was <laughs> sick and going to die yeah. or something, you know? Uh, like, there's not really an emphasis in this country on a kind of actual social approach to medicine right i mean it's fantastic that i don't have to pay to go to the doctor and i am very grateful for that and i don't take it for granted uh having come from the united states but i think that it's important too to recognize that even with socialized medicine kind of integrated into a capitalist system your subjectivity and the subjectivity of of our doctors and nurses and so on are just formed by that kind of neoliberal idea that your health is your own individual responsibility and, you know, a socialized approach makes that a communal approach. It takes into account social determinants of health. It takes into account what it means to be a community trying to be healthy. And I think that is like psychologically 
a really important alternative as well, even relative to capitalist countries with social medicine. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, can't overlook that kind of stuff and how that shapes your brain. Um, okay, so uh, socialized medicine in the country, but what about outside the country? You might be wondering. So this is from an article from People's World, uh, which is uh, a neat publication <laughs> called Cuban Doctors Battle COVID-19 Around the Globe Define the U.S., um, it was published in 2020 during the pandemic. So um, take take that <laughs> into your consideration as I read this. Um, but it says this. During the pandemic, Cuba had about 37,000 medical workers in 67 countries, most in long-standing missions. Some doctors have been sent as part of a free aid mission, but many countries pay the government directly for their services. In some other cases, international health bodies have paid as well. The most recent deployments of at least 593 doctors from the Henry Reed Brigade founded by Fidel Castro in 2005 and named after a 19th century American volunteer who, who fought for Cuban independence from Spain. Um, and then the article goes on to say that Cuba has a relatively high number of medical workers per capita. Officials say that there are currently 90,000 in the country of 11 million, which is a pretty big chunk. A lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of medical workers there. Um, so um, and, and, oh, it goes on to say too, that the Henry Reeve brigade, uh, as, as I mentioned before, was deployed previously on infectious disease missions, famously to help fight Ebola in West Africa in 2014. Um, so there, there it is. I don't know, some more like examples of how the rubber meets the road when it comes to healthcare and internationalism. Um, lots of medical workers, too many doctors, and then they're out there, um, sometimes for free and sometimes, you know, they're paid uh, and uh, th that's the arrangement. Uh, it is a profoundly, like you said a minute ago, Dean, it's a, it's a very different philosophy of medicine, right? Like um, that the, the government is like, <laughs> you know, sending you out overseas to go help other people um, and uh, and not like, you know, not some kind of weird uh, healthcare company in the United States um, doing it privately or something. Just a, mm -hmm. a completely different way of thinking about the, the world and thinking about healthcare. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the COVID uh, stuff. Um, there's also a really interesting thing that was instructive, I thought, at the beginning of the pandemic, also in 2020. Um, this story, I felt like, should have gotten way more press than it did. And so I'm going to tell you about it now. <laughs> um, the uh, a, a group of First Nations chiefs in Manitoba in 2020 were exploring actively bringing Cuban doctors to come to their communities and help them out with the COVID pandemic. And they were in talks with the Cuban embassy. It was a whole thing. And uh, that, that was kind of the plan. But in the end, the federal government of Canada uh, barred that from happening. And it is so gross how it all shook out. So in particular, Christian Freeland, um, a person I do not like <laughs> in the Canadian government <laughs> for a lot of reasons. Uh, she, in fact, responded to this request from these uh, First Nations folks saying Canada's healthcare system, which is staffed by outstanding healthcare professionals, has the capacity to deal with this extraordinary challenge. Uh, she went on to say, our job as a government is to work very hard to provide our healthcare system with all the resources it needs to help all Canadians, Indigenous and non-Indigenous. And uh, guess what? <laughs> they don't, and they didn't. And people in First Nations communities have died disproportionately from COVID uh, since 2020, since that happened. Um, she was either completely stupid or lying. I don't know. Either way, not an encouraging thing to hear from the Deputy Prime Minister of Canada. But it was, I think, a really revealing kind of moment, too, for how imperialism and colonialism are so interlocked that uh, Cuba... What Cuba really is with its health mission is also a threat to the way that um, first world and capitalist countries do wrong by people who are marginalized there, right? It, it's embarrassing to a country as wealthy as Canada to have people exploring getting doctors from Cuba, an extremely poor nation, so that they could fill the gaps in their healthcare system. Uh, a kind of somewhat similar case happened even after Hurricane Katrina when Fidel Castro offered to send doctors to Florida or to uh, the affected areas of Katrina. Yeah, Louisiana. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, Louisiana, thanks. And uh, Bush said no, that, that he didn't want that. And again, it's because it would be an embarrassment to the country, right, to accept help from Fidel Castro or from Cuba. 
So I think it's just important too to recognize that the medical missions are are threatening also because they do show a different way of doing things. And nevertheless, you know, people like Freeland and Trudeau are determined like they would rather have First Nations people die than have Cuban doctors come and fill that gap. And I think that is extremely shameful. Yeah, for sure. The U.S. right loves to talk about um, the ways that uh, these like sort of doctor missions are like uh, human trafficking as well from Cuba. They love to like say all kinds of weird, um, weird propaganda about how like these these doctors are traveling, but against their own will, and all kinds of like mm-hmm. other bonkers stuff too. Man, the United States is stupid. So is Canada. They should really <laughs> get this figured out. <laughs> Just like yeah, they deal with that in a salute, by the way, in some really fun ways. Like they talk to the doctors about that perception. Oh and, yeah, um, some kind of heartbreaking stuff too, because the film goes into the doctors also being expelled from certain Latin American countries when there's a changeover in government. Mm-hmm. And that is really sad because the doctors themselves are like, I was doing such great work in this part of this country or whatever, and now I can't. So anyway, um, lots more to to see about that. Yeah, totally. One last thing. So in addition to exporting doctors, Cuba is also importing medical students from all over the world, something they've done for a long time. Um, they have students at their medical schools from other countries in the global south, but also from the United States. And in particular, the Interreligious Foundation for a Community Organization, or IFCO, which people might remember from an episode we did a long time ago um, on Pastors for Peace. IFCO has been facilitating students from the U.S. and Puerto Rico studying medicine in Cuba at Cuban medical schools since 2001. And that effort actually responded to Fidel Castro, who made an invitation at Riverside Church in Harlem in 2000. Uh, to have students come to Cuba, where he noted that medical students often have to go super far into debt to study in the U.S. And so he said, why don't you come down to Cuba and study medicine here? So they have organized uh, all kinds of students graduating from medical school in Cuba. What a great thing. Cuba is not only sending doctors out, but they're also giving people an opportunity to study medicine there. Pretty incredible. Think about how much better it would be if there was not an awful illegal blockade on the country. (laughs) No kidding. (laughs) All right. Um, we're passing the baton now on, let's, let's talk about teachers. They're great. So we were talking about uh, a little bit ago, the ways that like some of this internationalism is kind of baked into the revolution itself and, uh, teachers and education is definitely another place where that shines through in a particularly strong way. Um, okay. So here's what you need to know. The first big campaign of the revolution was to push literacy amongst the population. You probably heard that, right? Uh, Cuba has a very high literacy rate of, uh, its people. Some people say it's like 99%. I don't know. I don't know if it's really that high. I don't know if I can really even judge that <laughs> as a person. But it's high. Just That's something we can all agree on. Um, the pre-revolutionary literacy rates, however, were very low. Between 60 and 75% of people knew how to read. But amongst those numbers, which seem not that low, um, th- it's important to note that there were big disparities between the urban and rural uh, populations of Cubans. So, for example... City dwellers had a literacy rate of 89%, whereas rural Cubans were at like 58%. So a pretty big disparity. People in the cities were uh, more affluent and uh, people in the in the countryside, not so much. So after the revolution in 1961, uh, Fidel decided that it was the year of education. And uh, Margaret Randall writes about it in her book. And uh, she's talking about these sort of like literacy brigades and how they all were in Havana and like they're downtown. They all have these big uh, cardboard pencils and they're asking Fidel (laughs) in like a big sort of like public show, Fidel, what do you want us to do? And Fidel says, study, study, study. So there you go. Fidel says it. You got to do your homework. (laughs) You got to do your homework. (laughs) Keep your grades up. Stay in school. Yeah. (laughs) Keep your grades up. So uh, Fidel made literacy the big priority in Cuba in 1961. Uh, and the way this works out is really fascinating, right? Rather than hiring a bunch of professionals, uh, which I guess probably didn't exist, uh, Fidel gets young people from all over Cuba to join these brigades to go out to like the most remote parts of Cuba and teach people how to read and write. And this is a huge success. Uh, I mean, it works. And, and, and this is important too, because it's not just like, these are like, uh, fancy city kids going to live amongst like, I don't know, poor people and then teach them uh, from on high. But the the kids that I keep saying kids, the young people that were there, um, 
they were uh, young people. The young people that were there in the brigades, they were there like working with people during the day and then like teaching them in classes during the night. So it's not like they were just like there hanging out and vibing, but they were like doing stuff like in the fields or whatever. So I don't know, a pretty wild situation, um, kind of a, a hard one to imagine in 2022. But um, but it's a great example of the ways that uh, these people were really committed to the idea of literacy, so much so that they would even go to like hard labor in the fields with people to teach them uh, how to read and write. Cool. Um, a lot of uh, there's a lot of criticism, however, of the literacy campaign because of a clear ideological slant that the materials had. And this is my favorite part of the story. Um, if you ever bring up the literacy campaigns to somebody on the right or even who is like a moderate sort of Democrat or something, they'll always tell you like, yeah, but they, they did it to teach people, you know, the ideology, they, you know, to, to educate people about communism, sort of win them propaganda. over. Yeah, it's propaganda. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Margaret Randall has a very funny take on this. So she writes this. The educational materials used in the campaign stress the new values the revolution hoped to instill. Some criticize those materials, claiming they were politicized. Of course they were. All such materials, no matter where they come from, reflect the ideology of those who produce them, and thus are politicized in one way or another. But how refreshing the contents of the Cuban workbooks were. Rather than push ideals of national superiority, vain competition, and consumerism, they disseminated knowledge of history and a sense of national pride, justice, and fairness. One of the workbooks posed the following problems. This is the content you're not going to get anywhere else, folks. This is it. This is the, Cub- <laughs> the Cuban literacy workbook that you're not going to hear about anywhere else. <laughs> Okay, here's the first one. A family's bill for electricity used to be $8 monthly. And after the reduction in rates ordered by the revolutionary government, it's $3 less. What's the family's present monthly expenditure for electricity? (laughs) (laughs) That's a story problem I can get behind. (laughs) I love it. I love it so much. Um, Here's another one. The revolution is promoting the raising of goats in the mountainous regions of Cuba in order to increase dairy production. If one goat gives six liters of milk every day, how many liters will four goats give? <laughs> I love this so much because it's like, I mean, every stupid story problem in, in the United States is always like, you're going to go to the store and buy 13 apples and then you give, th- yeah, yeah. you know, whatever. <laughs> um, with, with the uh, the baked-in consumerism, right? You're always buying apples from the grocery store. You're never you're never working on a commune. <laughs> the to... commodity <laughs> fetishism is there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I love these examples so much, though, because it's like they do have a clear ideological bent to them, but they're the funniest one I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> the revolution wants you to grow, <laughs> wants you to farm goats. Let's talk about that. <laughs> it's amazing stuff. Yeah, it is. Uh, and as we were saying, too, in addition to educating Cuban uh, people to read, there was also uh, an exporting kind of effort with this as well. And this is Margaret Randall's big thing, right, that Cuba's exporting its revolution. She writes, teacher training programs soon graduated many more than those lost through emigration. And once the teacher deficit disappeared, contingents began going overseas. Thousands of Cuban teachers continued to receive their home salaries while serving in nations such as Nicaragua, where liberation movements had been victorious. The language was the same, and eradicating illiteracy and extending opportunities to remote areas became priorities. So again, you have Cuba kind of, you know, a little bit further ahead than some other folks and willing to step in, give people a hand. Um, And when Margaret Randall chooses Nicaragua in particular... It's uh, surely also a choice because she had lived experience of both countries. She was in Nicaragua as it was struggling to figure out how to build a revolutionary society and also doing a huge literacy campaign. So uh, that's right, folks. Um, If the communists send you doctors, that's spooky. If the communists teach you how to read, that's very spooky. Um, It seems like pretty good stuff to me. I don't know. Learning how to read, learning how to uh, or being having your wounds taken care of. um, Pretty good communist activity. Yeah, that's right. You know, the closest thing the United States has is like Teach for America or something. But usually in the United States, that's just like a sort of a union busting device or a way to drive uh, <laughs> wages down for teachers. Uh, right. The exportation of teachers in the United States is is always sort of for capitalist ends, <laughs> whereas uh, here it's quite different. It's good. Yeah. Exportation for exploitation. That's right. That's the U.S. Uh, so. All right. We've talked about medicine. We've talked about teachers. We could talk about so much other stuff, right? We could talk about uh, the kind of infrastructure that Cuba was building, the kinds of um, national projects it's been building, its uh, sort of efforts to reduce climate change. So much stuff is going on in Cuba and has happened in Cuba. 
And meanwhile, all this stuff is going on, by the way, as Cuba's, as we've been talking about in the last few episodes, being uh, ravaged by U.S. imperialism, right? Not only the blockade, but like active terrorism, <laughs> like like people blowing up hotels and trying to invade the country and trying to kill Fidel Castro 600 sometimes, right? Like they're doing all this stuff with no money and being constantly besieged by the entire planet, essentially, because that's what the U.S. economy <laughs> feels like. Uh, so with all that going on and all these kind of signs of hope springing up, the question that Pope Francis says in the beginning is that Cuba is a symbol or so our question, I guess, <laughs> to that statement is what is Cuba a symbol of, right? Cuba is a symbol. What is it of? And for liberation theologians, I think you can say it really symbolizes a genuine alternative to global capitalism, a society that's really built on that preferential option for the poor. There's a great line from Michael Lowy that we quote in the Cubazine uh, in this book he has called War of Gods, where he says, in a symbolic way, one might say that the radical Christian current was born in January 1959 at the moment when Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, and their comrades marched into Havana, while in Rome, John XXIII issued his first call for the convening of the Second Vatican Council. And that is actually a really profound coincidence, that in 59, there's a moment of political liberation. There's also the beginning of what will become a kind of theological opening up to the modern world. And to sort of see liberation and theologians getting some encouragement from the Vatican to think very carefully about what they called the, the sorrows and anxieties and the joys and hopes of people in the modern world. To have theologians then say, okay, where are we going to kind of really think that through? Um, Cuba is such a unique sort of beacon. Uh, it's a real alternative. It's something that isn't happening uh, in the poor, right? Like the poor are not being taught to read. They're not getting doctors. Um, they're being exploited or left to die, basically, in all the rest of the, the global south or the third world at the time. So I think that question, you know, what is a cube, what is Cuba a symbol of? For liberation theologians, it's a symbol of a lot of things. And that's what I love about the zine that we put together is that, you know, you get that sense from these different theologians, uh, Boff, Beto, Ernesto Cardinal. Um, what do they see in Cuba? They see exactly that, a society that's really trying to think hard about the poor. Yeah, I think that's cool, right? Just like um, just like the way that Cuba is exporting the revolution in all these other ways, um, the visiting of of these uh, these great Christian folks um, is also a way to export the revolution in, in different ways, like culturally, right? Even like Dorothy Day kind of bringing it back to the United States is a pretty significant, um, mm-hmm. a pretty significant example. Yeah, I think, too, when we think about Cuba being a symbol, it helps to contextualize it historically as well. In the post-war years, like after the Second World War, when Europe and the U.S. are trying to think through how to rebuild society and really usher in a totally new economic reality, the West sets up these financial financial institutions like the IMF, the World Bank, you know, all these kinds of ways that U.S. banks are favored and they have this kind of new influence and hegemony in the world. And the U.S. sort of interventionist impulse kicks into high gear after the Second World War. There's kind of a also a, a maybe like liberal progressive scheme that recognizes that a lot of the world is under a huge economic stress. And so the solution is capitalist development. So the kind of humanitarian capitalism of the Second World War period or the post-war period is... We just need to go develop these poor countries and they'll get better. And by the time you get to Cuba, right, <laughs> development doesn't seem to be happening in Cuba. And uh, Batista is a dictator, like so many other leaders in Latin America, uh, who were happy to receive money from financial institutions and, you know, enrich themselves and not develop their countries. So Cuba is this fundamental rejection of that logic. And I think that's the symbol. Um liberation theology kicks off in like the early 70s. So about 10 years after the Cuban revolution has this success, you know, they're looking around and being like, well, there's not a lot of development happening in Latin America. It's like an arrested kind of continent. There's just nothing moving. It's it's stagnant. It's totally exploited. So maybe what we don't need is, is uh, development. Instead, what we need is liberation, as Gustavo Gutierrez would put it in uh, Theology of Liberation, right? That uh, Cuba represents exactly that, this kind of break with um, not just Batista, but like 
the whole economic arrangement that is impoverishing. <laughs> what's that word I'm trying to say? <laughs> Popperizing yeah. uh, the global South for the sake of the global North. So Cuba is a symbol in that way too, right? That uh, Christians don't have to just accept whatever handouts the, uh, <laughs> the financial institutions of the global North want to give them. They could actually do something on their own, something different. That's right. I mean, I think that's why Cuba is, that's why Cuba as a symbol is dangerous, right? Because it, it is a break with the logic of capitalism. It's an example um, for the entire world that it doesn't have to be this way in particular, right? I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that Cuba is like a perfect paradise or whatever, but it does mean that like the um, the type of exploitation that people suffer under capitalism, uh, whether it is like the imperialism abroad or the exploitation at home, it's like not not a necessity, right? Cuba shows that there's some kind of different world out there that could be possible. Um, even if the the project is not complete, the revolution is still underway, you know, there's still problems, what, whatever, who cares? But like, um, that's why it's dangerous. <laughs> that's why the United States hates it. And I think that, um, that that's also maybe an instructive thing for Christians too, though, right? Because um, Shay, he's, in, he's invested in, in a new type of people, but I think Christians share a similar type of investment in the world, right? Like, what does it mm-hmm. mean to really pay attention to the kingdom of God. And, uh, you know, just looking around, it's very hard to think that we've achieved it or gotten anywhere close with, um, uh, you know, capitalism in general. (laughs) So it's just like, what if there was a type of political order uh, that did take care of people when they were sick or that did teach people for free or didn't uh, hang people up with all kinds of debt? I don't know, some some big Christian ideas to me, um, from my perspective, (laughs) at least. Yeah, you know, it reminds me too of, uh, I was just reading, I'm reading this book, Monopoly Capital, by Paul Barron and Paul Sweezy, an extremely nerdy thing to do, uh, but they are kind of a couple of the big heroes of the monthly review. This is their big, big book. Um, it's a great book if you want to be a nerd about political economy. But there's a really cool line about Cuba. Uh, Paul Sweezy and Paul Barron both were very invested in Cuba, and uh, people in Cuba were also invested in their work. Che read their work. Um, Sweezy and Baron and some others traveled to Cuba and lots of stuff to say. Anyway, in Monopoly Capital, they're trying to sort of work out capitalism's monopolistic tendencies. And they have this great passage on Cuba. They say against this background, that monopolistic background, one can see that Cuba's crime was to assert in deeds as well as in words her sovereign right to dispose over her own resources in the interests of her own people. This involved curtailing and in the struggle that ensued, abrogating the rights and privileges which the giant multinational corporations had previously enjoyed in Cuba. And they go on to say, it might perhaps be thought that since Cuba is a small country, the violence of the reaction of Washington was out of all proportion to the damage suffered. But this would be to miss the point. What makes Cuba so important is precisely that she is so small, plus the fact that she's located so close to the United States. If Cuba can defect from the free world and join the socialist camp with impunity, then any country can do so. And if Cuba prospers under the new setup, all the other underdeveloped and exploited countries of the world will be tempted to follow her example. The stake in Cuba is thus not simply the exploitability of one small country, but the very existence of the free world itself. That is to say, the whole system of exploitation. And I think, you know, as you were just saying that, like there's this common interest between both Che and Christians in creating a new kind of person. And I think that's true even in this kind of context, that Cuba is delinking from that whole sort of economic system, but also that way of thinking, that way of being a person. And it's shaping people with like demonstrable differences, right? Uh, In Cuban society, people are more apt to go on an overseas mission or become a doctor or, you know, teach kids how to read in some other country uh, than they might be otherwise in a country like the U.S. or Canada. And it's not just defecting from the kind of economic relationships. It's like defecting from a whole way of, of becoming people, of creating certain kinds of people And I think that's one reason Cuba is such a symbol, even for Pope Francis, right? That it is like showing a different way of creating environments for creating different kinds of people, for inviting different ways of being human into the world. And for me, I think as a Christian, that's why I'm so fascinated with Cuba, right? (laughs) Like, I want to be a different person. (laughs) And what what kind of conditions would, would actually help me do that? I don't have them, but I can be sort of inspired by them and work to build them, you know, where I am anyway, under these conditions. All right, Dean, you won me over. 
Um, I'm going to turn away <laughs> from uh, the, the the idols of USAID, and I think that Cuba's good now. Um, what comes next? <laughs> That's a great question. What comes next? I think uh, it, what comes next, at least for this kind of episode, is the way that we end the, uh, the Cuba zine, which is to say we have to get rid of the blockade. That's the end of every episode of this podcast from here till the new year. Uh, we have to get rid of the blockade on Cuba because Cuba deserves to be free, right? And we in the global north, especially in the United States, have a, a responsibility to advocate for the removal of that blockade. That's that's where I'm going to say. That's where we need to go. All right, we've said it all. Um, end the blockade. Become a new type of person. <laughs> <laughs> Easy. Easy. Covering all of our bases here. Thanks for listening to The Magnificast. If you like what you heard, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash themagnificast. Also, subscribe to G's Magazine at gsmagazine.org. Also, get our Cubazine at, cube, at bit.ly <laughs> slash Cubazine. It's great. <laughs> also, tell everyone you know um, about the blockade and how it sucks and uh, think about ways to end it. I don't know. What levers of power can we pull? Who can we talk to? How many times do I have to call my uh, my senator? I don't know. Um, but we'll get there, I guess. Our intro music is by Mario Armstrong. Our outro music is by The Logical Spoon. And uh, we'll see you next time. I don't want to get up for church in the morning. Church in the morning. Souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, you keep your hoods up You keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, you keep your hoods up Where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late Oh, don't mind a cold night But we might mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early At least I would have